five, four, three, two, one. Hello, my name is Guillermo del Toro, and uh, I'm going to be the second intruder on your DVD commentary tracks for this wonderful film, Vampire. And uh, I am very proud and at the same time very ashamed to be doing this DVD commentary. Very proud because this is rightfully the most beautiful restoration of the film that you are bound to see. And uh, shame because I am not Carl Dreyer and I should shut up. But nevertheless, I'll tell you what this is. This is not a scholarly dissertation. This is the equivalent of inviting a fat Mexican to your house and feed him, and then you have to listen to him for mercifully a short time, and then uh, disagree, agree, insult, or uh, share any of my opinions. Uh, if you are seeing the movie for the first time, I urge you to turn off this commentary track and, and listen to it, if you will, uh, when you watch it a second time. Well, uh, right away, we start with a key image, uh, both in the title sequence and in the intertitles of the movie. Um, the skull, the skull in the background is important because for me, uh, <clears throat> this movie is very much uh, what the, in medieval times was called a memento mori, which, uh, which uh, means literally, remember that you will die. Memento moris uh, were used to remind us of the fleeting uh, pleasures of life. Uh, you can find them, for example, above the refectory entrances in, uh, in the dining rooms of monks and uh, on abbeys uh, and monasteries. And, uh, you know, right before you enter to dine, you would see a beautiful sculpture or carving in stone of a rotting corpse. And uh, beneath the rotten corpse, you would read Memento Mori, remember you will die. It, it was also a big tradition in art. And in art, you can find it in the portraits that, of young ladies in medieval times, uh, what they were called vanitas or vanity portraits. Uh, often you would find um, two motifs recurring again and again in the Memento Moris. Um, uh, one was the skull, which we saw. And the second one, another one that was an hourglass to symbolize time and how time eats it all. Time is the biggest vampire that you are bound to encounter because it will end up devouring you and devouring everything around you. Uh, the Memento Mori uh, seems to be uh, at absolute, in absolute agreement with the Purit uh, puritanical um, uh, views of uh, strict Lutherans, which uh, Dreyer was, uh, and with the, the medieval philosophy that gave birth to the Gothic, uh, the Gothic uh, uh, in architecture, in, in uh, art, and uh, the Gothic revival uh, during Victorian era, and the Gothic romance uh, in the 17th, 18th centuries. And uh, I think that uh, it's important that we keep this memento more in mind because you will see it reappear throughout the film. You know, uh, the skull is not only a motif that uh, gets repeated uh, during the film, the skulls of uh, babies, the skulls of uh, grown men, but that seems to permeate at the end everything, the wideness of the bone 
seems to permeate everything in the film, seeping into the uh, uh, hazy light. And uh, at the end, with the doctor's death, uh, uh, taking over the entire scene in the plaster factory where the doctor is drowned uh, by the white, you know, in the white, uh, uh, the white rooms and the white staircase and so on and so forth. So uh, some people talk about uh, it symbolizing the, the leaching out of the blood by the vampire and the whiteness as the cadaverous parlor. But I, I also think that it's an extension of the motif of the skull and the bones in the Memento Mori. Uh, the second constant image in the Memento Mori that you find in, in medieval times is the clock or the hourglass, as we discussed. And this you will find again and again uh, throughout the film. You will find it in the second uh, title card, uh, second or third title card, but more importantly, it will be repeated throughout the film. You will see watches uh, constantly and clocks constantly. Uh, and one of them, the, the one without a face and without a mechanism, uh, meaning, I would believe, time eternal or the timeless existence of the vampire, uh, is where the doctor hides the key to the, to the secret room. Here we have uh, definitely a completely memento mori image that is in that engraving. Uh, one of the most uh, uh, famous ways that a memento mori is known uh, is, for example, uh, the motif of the dance of the death. You know, the, everybody knows the Holbein engravings, but many medieval artists uh, recur to it. And in the film, you have the equivalent in the dance of the shadows that the vampire stops in the in the mysterious uh, white uh, building that of course I'm sure was commented that it was an, in reality an abandoned ice cream factory you know but uh, uh, this this motif of the memento mori is what makes the film for me transcend the linear tale the linear tale of vampire, it has been said that uh, much has been said about how mysterious the narrative is, and I would agree up to a point. But in reality, uh, you know, and especially with so much pushing from the intertitles and so much pushing from the, the uh, German title of the movie, for example, The Dream of Alan Gray, you know, uh, if you watch the film for the first time in a... Uh, in a linear fashion, I think it's actually quite easy to follow. Uh, uh, and the the most famous sequence, the premature burial, or the living uh, the the living coffin uh, scene, is uh, actually easily discerned as the dream of Alan Gray. So, uh, to me, the importance of the film is not so much uh, if it's linearly. Um, uh, closer to a dream or not the fact is that texturally it is texturally the film uh, beyond the technical means of how it was achieved the film uh, manages to become symbolically uh, transcendental you know it, it is loathing the the very texture of the frame the very grain of the film with uh, with importance 
And Dreyer said at some point, stated himself that a work of art is very much like a person and that as such it has a personality and personality comes from style. And I'm sure I'm paraphrasing him wrong, but he said essentially that style cannot be discerned, that it imbues itself in every single aspect of the film. Uh, you cannot just say, well, it's the, the photography and the music and uh, the wardrobe or the decor. Everything together creates the style of a film. And, uh, uh, you know, the formal aspects of Vampire uh, are carrying a much more heavy narrative than the linear narrative. Uh, we have a rather simple story, I believe, being told, the story of um, a vampirization beyond the grave, but the metaphysical aspects of the film, the things that go beyond what we see and beyond the dramaturgy are more important. To me, film is unique in all the narrative arts because its origins are closely linked at the very beginning with the theatrical structure. You know, the Aristotelic uh, or Aristotelian structure of, the, you know, having uh, three points to a story uh, that, that take you through it. And I think that very early on, film transcends that. Film in the first uh, 30 years of his existence uh, starts transcending that. And it is the texture. It is the, the film itself, the, the, the light and the shadow that become important, the, the marriage of images and sound that become important. Uh, again, much has been discussed about uh, Dreyer being influenced by uh, the exhibition of the Le Chien Andalou, the Buñuel and Dali film, and uh, in 1929. Obviously, uh, the easiest thing to do is to, uh, to think that uh, this is a, um, of true consequence and that the, the film is very different from the rest of the films in Dreyer's filmography. But I actually find uh, that it's uh, sort of a, the flip of a coin is the flip side of um, uh, the spirituality in Joan of Arc. You know, I, I think that... Uh, there is, uh, there is much to be said about the Lutheran uh, upbringing of Dreyer influencing the way he approaches the mystic side of this film. In, in, strict, in strict terms, it is perhaps one of the few vampire films uh, that have actually uh, gone to the root of the mythos and made the vampire a spirit, not a physical creature. Uh, uh, most of the time, uh, you get uh, a living corpse. That's what you get. You get uh, Dracula or you get uh, Nosferatu, but you get essentially a physical animated corpse. And in the oldest European tradition, in the uh, most antique manuscripts in Eastern Europe and Greek, um, uh, Greek manuscripts about vampirism and so forth, in reality, it is uh, a spiritual uh, infectation. The vampire is a hungry spirit that will drain the living and will, a choice, materialize 
partially and selectively if it needs it, if it serves him so. But essentially a vampire is uh, a shadow and the father or the mother of shadows. And it is this hungry shadow that uh, haunts the living and drains them. Correctly so in, in the text that Dreyer uses uh, to quote, uh, the tradition in European vampirism is that the vampire first parasites the family and parasites a household from the inside and, uh, and tries to corrupt the most innocent members of the family. And, and, uh, but, but again, it is a spirit. And this is, this is where I think uh, the, movie, the movie has uh, more importance. It's not so concerned about the physical death. The anecdote is, the anecdote, the dramaturgy, the screenplay, the literary form is concerned about the girl dying or living. But the movie is concerned about salvation and redemption and, and uh, transcendence and uh, uh, the capacity to be saved by, by grace. You know, I think that there is a moment uh, in which uh, the victim says, I am lost, I am damned, which is essentially uh, quite a Lutheran statement. Uh, there, were, um, there were three elements to, to the doctrine, to the Lutheran doctrine. One of, the, one of them, the key of them, the key, the key one was to be saved only by the grace of God, to be saved only by the grace of faith, and to be saved only by the grace of Jesus. Uh, essentially, the belief, uh, the belief that we were uh, absolutely lost if it was not for the grace of God. It is not our own acts that will uh, save us. It is not our own faith only that will save us. We will only be saved by the intervention of uh, by, and sacrifice of Jesus. And this is where I, I think there is an aspect that I have not found discussed much in any book or in any treatise, but it is an aspect that fascinates me, the, the capacity for Alan Gray to be a Jesus figure. And, and essentially through the sacrifice of blood and through his own death, even if it is only a dream, uh, saving the innocent. It is through this uh, messi messianic sacrifice that this, uh, that this character manages to conquer evil. Uh, the, the actor uh, portraying him, who, by the way, so much resembles H.P. Lovecraft in an, an, an actually a disturbing way, you know, and who was uh, in reality a noble, a baron, that financed the, the film for Dreyer, does have this uh, very, very um, uh, soft, very tragic appearance and uh, the, the appearance of a victim, but a willing one. You know, much like Jesus, he gives his blood, he gives his life, he offers uh, that sacrifice, that sacrament uh, to save the victim of the vampire, who is the vortex uh, and the mother of all shadows in the film. Uh, one of the important aspects of the film is that is, uh, as the credits 
state loosely based on the writings of Joseph Sheridan Lefano, uh, um, particularly his collection called In a Glass Darkly, which is uh, in and of itself a biblical quote uh, or misquote of the Bible. But uh, the, the real clue to this is how little it actually resembles Lefano. Uh, and any of his writings, you know, if you if you see the 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 if you read the novelette or novel that uh, is supposedly have a, uh, the most influence on it, which is Carmilla, you would find uh, an absolute absence uh, of most elements in the film, except the vampirization of a young girl and the the household that is worried about her and the ultimate rescue of her. Uh, gone are all the very, very physical uh, undertones in Lefano's novel. Gone are the uh, lesbic, erotic aspects of the vampirization that Carmilla uh, uh, takes on in, in the novel. And this, I think, is an incredibly important clue. It is not the death of the body that concerns Dreyer. Is the death of the soul, and the sur and the super, uh, su surviving of the soul that concerns him, and and the fact is that in doing that, uh, and in making every menacing element completely ethereal, light, shadow, absence of, and presence of, uh, he creates what I would essentially call a metaphysical poem. It is not. I would say, a completely articulated meditation. That would be perhaps going too far. But yes, a poem. And I dare to use the, the, the word poem precisely because he, if, if he was liberated of anything by the viewing of Le Chien and the Lou in 1929, I believe he felt liberated of structure. But he felt the necessity to achieve rhythm and rhyme. You can see how he uh, goes back to, uh, cuts back constantly to the repetition, the rhythmic repetition of elements, not only the skull and the weather vane and the clocks and, uh, and this and that, but rhythmically. I, I, I became so obsessed when I was young about this film that I believe there was a rhythm even in the wallpapers. You know, the, the, the way the wallpapers uh, seem to have an almost cadence to them, like musical notes. And I think this poem, this poetic structure that uh, Dreyer achieves uh, is what, what allows it to be uh, much more profound that is not speaking to our logical mind. It is not speaking to our narrative uh, mind that needs to go from A to B to C, from first act to second act to third act, but to a deeper, to a deeper place in us, to a place that can only be talked to through light and shadow. And that makes it reach us deeper. The, the surreal film, the surrealists, obviously did not codify their films the way Dreyer does. Dreyer very much, I think, follows the medieval tradition, as I said, to use the skulls and the, and the clocks and the dance and the merriment and the, the uh, futility of uh, 
richness and laughter and music and food. And and it's an overpowering, very fatalistic and, and at the same time very, uh, very beautiful portrait of uh, man as spirit and man as flesh. Um, but... Uh, the surrealists didn't need didn't have the need to codify because they were uh, quite frankly beautiful savages of the id they were iconoclasts they were speaking from their darkest um, reaction to to a bourgeois culture to an oppressive academic culture and and uh, they were not trying to follow in the medieval tradition of coding uh, what Murnau does by trying to codify it, I believe, as a memento mori, is to speak only to the spiritual side. Because, as I said, memento moris were completely linked to uh, religion and to religion imp religious impulse. And as such, he truly speaks to the spiritual side of the tale. It is not a subversive... Uh, uh, juxtaposition of uh, random savage images. It's a careful construction of rhyme, a careful construction um, of an edifice of light and shadow. And I believe that it is in this film uh, that uh, Dreyer ap uh, approaches uh, that lyrical use of cinema the strongest, in my view. Perhaps I am completely biased because of the genre I love. But it is here uh, that he is finally freed from uh, naturalism. Uh, he is uh, achieving what he states uh, in many of his other films where he says, we shall not concern ourselves with reality. We shall concern ourselves with truth, he says. And he achieves those absolutely moving, amazing close-ups. Uh, or those amazing camera moves. But in here, free of the banality of reality, finally freed from the chains of the real world, I think it is where he soars into a new level of uh, poetics, into an absolutely unique syntax. Uh, and what, mo what most people view back then and still viewed to this day, tragically, as a failure. You know, a lot of people call this movie a beautifully flawed experiment, if not worse. You know, I think that uh, it is perhaps the most experimental of his films, is perhaps the most free of his films, and it's, in my view, the one, the one that uh, achieves uh, the looseness and the... Uh, transcendence that he made text on the other ones. Uh, here it's completely laying as a, um, as a subtext uh, to every single uh, formal piece in the film. Uh, the same way that he was misunderstood in content, he was misunderstood technically. Uh, many people questioned uh, the even the technical capacity of both Dreyer and his cinematographer to expose film properly when they saw this uh, vampire. They called it a technically sloppy, a technically flawed film, uh, as if 
any of any image in, in Dreyer's filmography could be accidental. Uh, I think the, the film, uh, to anybody uh, approaching it for the first, second, or third time, uh, uh, the, the, more you, the more you see it, the more you realize it's fastidiously codified. And uh, it is uh, beautifully constructed to end up in perhaps one of the most uh, moving, elegiac, and uh, uh, transcendental images in the history of film. We'll get to it towards the end. Uh, the other thing that I find interesting is that uh, the play of light and shadow, which was so key in all of Dreyer's filmography, here it gains uh, an actual textual importance. You know, the, the fact that uh, shadows and light become not only representations of, but become... Uh, important characters to the narrative themselves. And uh, I remember when I first saw this film, uh, at some point uh, I, I saw a really damaged print. I was the projectionist, by the way, back then. And I remember at some point uh, nervously looking at everyone to see if they were projecting a shadow. And, and, and fretting about it and, and, and uh, it is a testament to Dreyer's intelligence and uh, persuasiveness that uh, after the first third of the film every shadow of every character anything, a conversation listened through a window glimpsed through a window uh, becomes menacing uh, the more uh, information uh, that we gather from only the cinematic tools, the more I think a film becomes brilliant. And uh, there is a moment in Dreyer's film where our main information, our main experiencing of the tale is sustained exclusively by cinema, exclusively by, uh, by light uh, passing through a projector and sound uh, being reproduced is is not so much the tale as the way it is told. Uh, another aspect that is interesting here, uh, following that pattern, is that uh, it seems to be that the white, uh, that the light, absorbs the shadow, both as a salvation, both as an instrument of salvation, but also as an all-encompassing, uh, voracious entity. At the end of the film, uh, both those that are saved and those that are damned are engulfed by the white, by the whiteness of it all, by the void of it all. It is in this void uh, that I believe that uh, the film uh, is trying to represent the highest uh, ultimate state of not being, the fusing and becoming one with the grace, the achieving that light at the end of the tunnel, the light, the eternal light of the Lord, and so on and so forth. But I believe that it is achieved in 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 a way that uh, I haven't seen any other film achieving because the last few minutes of it are almost like moving engravings, like moving mezzo tint uh, from the 18th, 19th century. Uh, with a beauty that is completely graphic, completely graphic uh, 
uh, as to have uh, a painterly uh, quality. Uh, and, and it is one of those rare um, instances in, in, in film experience where uh, I have achieved a, a complete sense of elation in watching a film. I remember seeing, projecting this horribly ratty, chewed up 16 millimeter copy of the film. And uh, that print, uh, no matter how damaged it was, no matter how grungy, dingy it was, the images seemed to burn through it. And, and at that age, when I, when I saw it, many of the images that you see in this film became seminal in, in, in what I do. Obviously, one of them, towards the end, is the incredible scene uh, with lovingly rendered close-ups of gears, gears turning in an, in an absolutely sensual and inexorable way. You know, I think that is extremely important. You know, there is that phrase, the, the wheels of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. And I, I think that that is, you know, having raised Catholic, uh, although I would have sworn my grandmother was Lutheran, if, if you go by what I read uh, in Dreyer's biography, you know, uh, I, I, I shared the same fascination for this sort of destiny dispensating machines. You know, the, the, the fact that the death of the doctor is uh, mechanical, that is inexorable, and that is total and uh, obliterates him into white is absolutely uh, one of the greatest moments. And when I saw, when, I, when I've seen this movie quoted in so many other films, you know, when you see, obviously, the, the, the pejorative uh, uh, or loving uh, tributes, depending on the film. You can, you can see it, obviously, the way it influenced the aspect of uh, Professor Ambrosius in, in Fearless Vampire Killers is completely taken from the doctor. Uh, but also, uh, I remember watching Peter Weir's Witness and ha seeing how uh, an agent is killed in a silo by by a deluge of grain and and just smiling privately, knowing that Peter Weir had seen Vampire at some point or another. And uh, I have myself uh, uh, tried to reproduce uh, the beauty of those gears incessantly and in <laughs> not very fruitfully, I, I may add. But I, I try for sure and. Uh, so many moments in the film become seminal. The staking uh, through the heart, and actually quite correctly, into the ground, which is what the uh, tradition of the vampiric tale demands, and the myth of the vampire demands that you stake the corpse to the ground, that you essentially nail the the spirit and the corpse to the ground it is buried in. Uh, that, uh, and especially the close-ups, uh, omitted originally in so many of the versions, uh, certainly the German version out of censorship, the close-up of the hammer hitting the stake and the rhythmic montage that follows on it, uh, that has been imitated uh, so many, many times. Obviously, I think very few would argue that the motif of the independent shadows, the living shadows, uh, that appears in Francis Coppola's Dracula did not derive from this film. Uh, 
Uh, although what I find uh, beautiful in Dreyer's is that it is not used as a gag. Uh, it is used as an essential thematic element, uh, not only to, pro to show the vampire or her slaves, but to actually show her influence in the world. I think that that's one of the aspects of the film that I find unique. Dreyer was concerned with how the way we view the world, either by faith or belief, ends up transforming the world. And this is, again, something that had a great impact on me. Uh, it became kind of a credo for me. Uh, you can see it, obviously, in, in, in The Passion of Joan of Arc, uh, but more importantly for me in Vampire, because ultimately we experience... Uh, most, if not all, the film through Alan Gray's eyes. And from the start, uh, you see the image of the uh, reaper, of the man with the scythe uh, ringing the bell uh, on the edge of the water. And that image is uh, objectively there, and it is uh, sort of a, a naturalistic image to, to a point, but then as the movie progresses, it becomes a feverish dream that we experience uh, objectively, subjectively, sorry, subjectively to the point of reaching its apex of subjectivity in the burial scene. But uh, it it is through the eyes of Alan Gray that his belief in the occult starts transforming everything around him. It transforms uh, the shadows and uh, the rhythm and the way he views everything around him. The famous shot of the reverse film of the man shoveling the earth and the earth actually going towards the shovel. You know, uh, the, way, the way he experiences everything is an altered state. And in that way of experiencing the world, his desire <clears throat> to belong to that limbo of the other world, the netherworld, is perfectly realized at the end when he finally achieves that state, finally reaches that place that he, as a scholar, so much uh, seeked in the past through the this sort of river sticks of uh, mist and fog and into a searing uh, dawn, the searing sunrise, that eats away the shadows and the sins towards the end of the of the film. I think that uh, when Alan Gray experiences that final uh, moment of uh, transcendence, uh, we have gone with him. At that point, we have ceased to question the logic and the linear uh, story of the film, and we are fully invested in the sensorial, in the sensual experience of the film, as, a, as through the eyes and the ears and so forth. Many people, many people uh, uh, quote uh, similarities uh, of film experimentation between this film and some of uh, Cocteau's films, but I think that that is very superficial. In reality, I don't. I think uh, Cocteau is fascinated uh, by the effect, and I'm a big admirer of him and uh, his fairy tale. Uh, Beauty and the Beast has been of great influence to me, but uh, uh, there is no comparison. Uh, to me, uh, 
the reality is uh, Dreyer uh, is creating a, a delicate text and a delicate uh, fabric. And, and uh, Cocteau is uh, so in love with the toys of cinema that, uh, that he utilizes them uh, more, much more like a magician than, uh, than, than a prophet. Dreyer is a prophet and Cocteau is a magician for me. And uh, at its worst, uh, Cocteau uh, can be like the Pierre and Gilles of, uh, of this kind of effects. And Dreyer at its worst, even at its worst in, uh, when he uses these effects in Vampire, there is an aura of menace and there is an aura of mystery that, uh, that goes beyond uh, just the toy, just the playing with the effect. It was, I think, Magritte uh, that said that it's the duty of art to uh, connect us with mystery. You know, not to reveal it, not to elucidate it, not to uh, eclipse it with the rationale, not to explain it, but to just connect us. And that's, uh, that's why this is such a, a mystic genre, the horror genre. Because uh, at its best, even in some of the worst movies, uh, at its best, there is a mystical aspect um, to it. There is an aspect that cannot be explained by the rational, by the, by the everyday rules of physics and chemi chemicals. And, uh, you know, it is, it is uh, mysticism and symbols in raw state. You know, uh, the people on the screen become um, uh, archetypes. They become uh, more than just the anecdotal character that they're playing. And therefore, they are uh, capacitated by this genre to achieve wholeness, achieve um, purity. They can, at some point, represent pure evil or pure good. This is something that uh, creates uh, trouble for the realists, for the rationalists, you know, the people in the age of reason, in our modern age of reason, where everything has to make sense. Obviously, there is... Uh, there is a lot of nonsense, uh, immature nonsense in the in the genre, uh, and I suspect that uh, there may be a lot of the put downs uh, on the Dreyer uh, vampire that people that say it's not a fully realized work, they are also misguided by its genre. Uh, by how vertical, for how absolutely condescending they are to it. But the fact is, it's very rare that a master filmmaker tackles the genre. Uh, but when they do, they, they, they manage to create incredibly powerful parables uh, beyond any other film because they are not preachy parables. They are truly illuminated, uh, illuminated ruminations on, on the very essence, the spiritual essence of being human. And uh, uh, the times were Murnau, Dreyer, Kubrick, and a few others have tackled the fantastic genre. We have always been uh, gifted with uh, masterpieces. Masterpieces not only in the genre, but I dare say touchstones of the art of cinema. 
because I believe that cinema is uh, an art that needs to be liberated from only its uh, dramaturgy. You know, I believe that it is necessary for people to to recognize that some of the most powerful images, the ones that linger in us, uh, like larvae inside our bodies, not necessarily are linked to the most astounding uh, screenplays, necessarily, or the most astounding stories. The films, as a complete entity, yes, they are. Uh, but uh, so many times when we are watching the Blessed Academy Awards, we realize that people are really rewarding an animated screenplay, that they're rewarding a theme, that they're rewarding uh, um, an, um, a dignified uh, exposition, uh, a theatrical uh, exposition of a problem with actors, yes, with a camera, yes, but not necessarily a film, not necessarily a film experience. Dreyer said at some point that uh, realism uh, was interesting uh, to, to find the truth because truth was life minus the unnecessary details. Truth, uh, therefore, in a genre film uh, allows you to filter and purify things to their minimal expression and their strongest expression, their purest. You can deal with absolutes. You can, you can deal with concepts uh, represented by characters. And I think that's the other thing that takes off uh, a lot of people, people that believe that a good character is a nuanced character. I'm going to take a moment to tell you you, you're going to agree or disagree with this fat Mexican, but I feel that that is a complete misconception. A good character is a good character, whether it's pure and un, unadulterated, representing a single force of nature in a, in a clockwork of a film. You know, you, you, each character has a function in a symbolic play, if you would. And you don't necessarily have to nuance the evil of the vampire or the evil of the doctor or the innocence of Grey. You know, by the way, may I take a moment to say that uh, there is, I believe, a very good reason why uh, the character's name is Alan Grey. And I think that it's uh, of special importance in the way the film utilizes the white and the black. This is the only character, Alan Grey, that drives both worlds. Uh, you know, in a world that is completely divided in those two, in white, white and black, he remains in the nether uh, zone. You know, he, as specified in the opening intertitle, you know, he he is a man that is has now a blurry notion of what is real and what is uh, supernatural, and at the same time, I think that his gray essence confirms a belief, a Lutheran belief, that. In Jesus, uh, you coexist, the natures coexist of man and God. You know, it's a, it's a combination of the pure white and the, the purely material and the purely spiritual. And therefore, Alan Gray is the perfect uh, great Jesus to take us through this journey. Uh, this movie is one of the two reasons why I named the, the character in Kronos Jesus Gray, Jesus Gray. Uh, one was uh, obviously this movie. The other one was uh, 
a famous lab operator in Mexico <laughs> that he was in charge of the film lab. There were two guys, and one was called Gray, and the other one was called Scratch. Very auspicious for a film lab. But I, I was fascinated by the name Gray for, for my character because I, I think that a gray Jesus is so interesting. A mild-mannered uh, sheep, a mild-mannered sheep, that uh, a sacrificial lamb that dies in order for us to live. Uh, and, I, and I always thought Alan Gray was that kind of, of messiah, a very bland very willing messiah, but not, not necessarily uh, one that had grand heroic gestures. In discussing the purity of the characters, I think that the same can be said about the, the genre. It is looked upon as a minor genre because of the purity in which, in with which it addresses its themes in the way it addresses the absolutes. But I think that in fertile ground, in, in the right hands, this is a place where you can find a, a metaphysical discussion being enacted by the plot, as opposed as just a plot being enacted by the actors. And this is the case in Vampire. As a poem, it is more important to absorb it and to emotionally make it part of you than to decompose it and decipher it. I think when you decipher a poem, when you decipher a symbol, when you imbue a symbol with an exact value, it transforms from a symbol to a cipher. And it becomes, it transforms from a poem to a, a mathematical exercise. And it becomes dry and it becomes dead. So it is foolish to try to decode uh, the symbols in Vampire. It is important to understand the rhythm and the repetition of them. And it is important to try to uh, talk about them in the most general sense. But one should not foolishly try to assign specific value to them. Because in, in doing that, you would asphyxiate uh, the poem. You would asphyxiate the film. And when you, when you think about the roots of all uh, genre films, of the roots of all horror films, which uh, one has to trace to the very gothic origins of it all. And uh, the fact that even in architecture, before, way before the, the, modern, uh, the modern way of uh, talking about gothic, which really has more to do with gothic romance and uh, the gothic revival, that uh, that brought all the thrills and the uh, chills in literature, uh, starting with the Castle of Otranto. When you talk about the very origin of Gothic architecture, it has always been a spiritual and a religious arena of the arts. And when you think about even the cathedrals, which are themselves incredibly powerful place of light and shadow, Essentially, they are architecture of light and shadow. They are also pieces of stone that are incredibly fascinated by the transcendent with their huge Gothic arches pointing towards the sky that elevate the spirit or spirit and at the same time humble us and show us our rightful place in the cosmos, the insignificance of man, the glory of God. But at the same time, they are incredibly in love with sin 
and their gargoyles and their excesses and at the base of their columns and in, in the most unsuspecting corners of the most pious cathedral, you find a gargoyle devouring a man or scenes of gluttony or excess carved with uh, grotesques that are as much an integral part of the phenomenon, the Gothic phenomenon, as the rosettes and the stained glass and the, all the other beautiful transcendent elements. It is this medieval sense of doom and grace and purity that goes all the way through the purest examples of the narrative in the genre, and certainly through Vampire. You know, because I think that Dreyer finds his Lutheran roots very much touched by this aspect of spirituality that is not explainable, that is not part of a church dogma or part of a system of beliefs. It is the true essence, the true mystery of the spiritual experience in this film. He's talking about absolutes without a particular uh, being subscribed to any particular belief. Many have argued that the belief that, as I said, of the white encompassing it all is more Eastern, is Japanese. You know, how the Japanese believe that white is the color of death and not black, and how white is the voracious uh, afterlife. And Dreyer is now, you may say, disrespectfully, he's riffing, he's riffing with symbols that go beyond just his Lutheran uh, raising. You know, he's really, he was, he may have been raised a Lutheran, but now he's dealing with the most pure, unfiltered, Jungian stuff of dreams and nightmares. And, and I think that in that, he must have felt completely free. And in that, he must have been devastated when the film was not received as it should have been. The film was uh, shot in 1930 and didn't come out until 1932. Many see it as, if not the final nail, obviously, one of the nails in the coffin of Dreyer because it reaffirmed for those, for the powers that be, that Dreyer was, without any doubt, of cultural significance, but of financial abhorrence. You know, he, he should never be touched as an investment. Uh, he could have been seen as a great artist, but he was seen as, a, as an incredible risk in the film industry. Now, to, to talk about the importance of this film at its time and to fathom how important it is experimentally, one can obviously discuss the absolutely marvelous, fluid camera work, which is, I believe, absolutely mind-boggling. Not only in the most pejorative aspects, how big the equipment was, how difficult it was to move it, and so forth, but in the conceptual aspect of it. There were very few people thinking about film in this way. Uh, Dreyer thinks about film spatially. You know, you have you have great masters like Stroheim, like Einstein, or you have a great American masters like uh, Griffith and so forth. But very few people thought of film in the, in the three dimensions, in which the camera could move sensually, freely, and and really 
take you through the space with not only to achieve one shot and that's it, but to create a mood, which is really important. You you have Alfred Hitchcock obviously already doing amazing, amazing shots at this time. You know, he was doing some of his most famous crane shots from a, from a massive shot to a close-up of an eye and so forth. But it's not about just the technical intelligence of the shots is the fact that very few people were using the camera as a moving instrument to create mood, to create atmosphere, to create the very fabric of the narrative. It was not a piece in the narrative. Most people were thinking, obviously most people were thinking of film as prosceniums of different sizes edited together with rhythm to tell a story. You know, they would go from a wide shot to a close-up to a medium to a this, and through the rhythm and the, and this and that, they would narratively achieve something. But mood, and especially mood through uh, through a moving camera, and look at this, mood through purely light and shadow. The fact that light and shadow can become menacing is incredible. As a testament to the importance of the film, I urge you uh, not to trust whatever prejudice the inventory I can give you now. Go uh, go on and uh, search uh, the year it was released and more importantly the year it was shot, 1930. And tell me, if you can tell me three or four films that were experimenting at this level with the uh, vocabulary of cinema, with the syntax, the three-dimensional not the theatrical, the three-dimensional nature of cinema. Uh, I I would be very glad to hear about them. Write me to my email, which everybody knows, a-sapien at hotmail.com and tell me, you fat bastard, here are three and four films of that era. Now shut up and die. And I will proceed to asphyxiate. Uh, but the, the importance of this film, the beauty of this film as, a, as an artifact of invention, as an artifact of a unique mind, uh, is, is at the same time incredibly beautiful and tragic because uh, of many of the careers uh, in film that have been tragically brief. I cannot think of one that hurts more in the genre, certainly, in the in the possibilities that could have opened if this film had been successful. For Dreyer to move on and do other films, you know, if you want uh, financed uh, by, the, by the richer and powers that be for purely lucrative intentions, but for Dreyer as an instrument, as a narrative instrument, what a tragedy, what a loss. This is a seminal moment for the horror genre. This is the moment where mythos are created and compare this to its counterparts in America. Incredibly important films in, in 32, but compare it to them. And even the most exquisite of them is completely pejorative and pedestrian compared to Vampire. And none of them have the level of poetry or experimentation that this one has. And here we come to, to that uh, most famous of sequences, full of images that, uh, as I was a kid in Mexico, 
more concretely in a little province in a small town called Sapopan, uh, you know, and I would pour through the film encyclopedias and see those still frames in Vampire, you know, the shot of Alan Gray inside the coffin, uh, the shot of the the vampire looking through the glass, you know, and I would I would imagine 55 movies that were amazing, all called Vampire. Uh, also, the, the, the encyclopedia I had, which was from Spain, uh, the title of this movie in Spain was La Bruja Vampiro, the vampire witch, which made it twice as exciting for a fat boy in Sapopan. You know, so so th this movie became a, a crucial piece of my dream vocabulary of what film is. Now, this moment, the moment of him contemplating himself in the coffin, and and or narrator is insubstantial, and the corpse is substantial. I believe that uh, I will not attempt to explain it. I just think that it's symbolically so powerful. It's as powerful and symbolic as any Magritte painting could be, or any Dali painting could be, or any of the other surreal painters can. And this is where I think uh, Dreyer takes a genre and uh, elevates it to the form of a high art, to takes it to to the point where uh, many frames of this film, many moments in this film could be hung as uh, masterpieces of uh, not, not only painterly power, but uh, sensorial power. In fact, uh, for whatever reason, and especially this frame that you're watching now, you know, uh, this film constantly reminds me of uh, Edward Monk. Uh, it, it, it not, not only about Edward Monk and his equivocally named The Vampire uh, engraving and painting, but of Edward Monk in general. Uh, the fact, uh, he, he, the plasticity of the images that, uh, that uh, Dreyer creates, uh, it reminds me of so many other painters and engravers and artists. I think that his landscapes, with Alan Gray wandering through them, are the only moving representation I can imagine of, for example, Edward Gorey uh, drawings. Uh, you know, these this, uh, lost souls in the mist and shrouded fields. Uh, and you know, it, it, they are perfectly captured uh, by Morneau and probably influenced uh, Gorey as they influenced uh, so many other artists and, and uh, filmmakers. And and uh, if you compare, for example, uh, one of the earlier uh, sound representations of the vampire, uh, which is uh, Todd Browning's Dracula, uh, respectfully, and I have never been a Lugosi fan, I am a Boris Karloff fan, I am a huge fan of Boris, I think he was a phenomenal actor, and I, I, I love, uh, I love uh, Lugosi, uh, in other films of Universal, not particularly his Dracula, and I'm a big fan of Todd Browning and so forth, but compared, comparing the uh, physicality of that Dracula, the physicality of that evil, uh, where the main concern is a bodily damage to, to the suffocating, suffocating uh, uh, menace that uh, the holy, unholy trinity 
in this film brings. The unholy trinity of the doctor, the man with the wandering shadow, and the vampire. You know, this, this, this horrifying trinity uh, uh, proves that it can damage you in so many ways. The doctor represents the physical damage. You know, in the in the way that he can uh, be conducive to your body languishing and perishing, either through poison uh, that that will be close to you in case you want to commit that much announced suicide, or uh, by just simply uh, not giving you the right treatment, and then this incredible menace. The vampire is never really seen detailed in the act of sucking blood. The fact is, its power is far more dreadful and far harder to describe and to pin. The vampires uh, after your soul. And uh, then finally, the, 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 the Holy Spirit of this Trinity, which is the man with the wandering shadow, that has almost a fairy tale uh, quality. To himself, you know, you one can think of Adalbert von Chamiso, or uh, um, uh, you know, E.T.A. Hoffman, or many of these great uh, fairy tale slash horror uh, writers that 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 understood that the border between a fairy tale and a horror tale is so hard to define and so hard to 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 pin, and and this unholy trinity. Uh, is in fact burying here uh, not Alan Gray's body, but his soul. And this is where I, what I find fascinating. We, we saw Alan Gray, who was us, translucent, observing himself in the coffin. But Dreyer is so incredibly perverse that now he shifts the point of view through only cinematic tools. And now we are, by omission or by uh, subtext, we understand that this is not just a corpse. It's not just a lump of flesh and bone. It is a conscious entity. Why do we know that? Because it's not only his uh, beautiful religious upward gaze uh, like uh, like a Jesus gaze in a in a little religious stamp, but the fact that we are experiencing this subjective point of view, we know this body is alive, and uh, this is one of those films that seem to have uh, th that uh, a literary quality for this reason, because uh, when one thinks, for example, of Edgar Allan Poe's The Premature Burial and so forth. Uh, uh, very few films can really uh, be as descriptive and as detailed in their uh, showing of an experience, in their going through a, uh, a process as this film is. This film is a detailed journal, a detailed journal, sensorial, sensual journal of sounds and images and the descent into limbo, you know, that or ascent. Ascent or descent into limbo, the crossing of the river Styx into the other world, you know, and, and it's a detailed diary, a de detailed itinerary of that. Now, uh, for those trying to, you know, we, we quoted this uh, crypt 
we quoted this script on Hellboy. <laughs> Not proud about that, but just talking about the many ways that I have quoted uh, this film is not I'm, I think Dreyer would have slapped me and probably and said how dare you disgusting man but but we quoted we break the stone in the same way and so on and so forth and as I said the vampiric the vampiric tradition is here finally observed uh, and uh, I, I find it very beautiful the moment of transmutation from a living corpse to the skull uh, it occurs, uh, one could say, this this moment has been imitated so many times, and, uh, you know, uh, you have obviously Christopher Lee in the Hammer films turning into a gradual disintegration by the souls and so forth. But the beauty of the moment in Dreyer is that it it is not so much a disintegration as it is a revelation. Once again we come back to the idea of the memento mori. Uh, it is the shroud of our flesh that reveals our true physical nature of a skull. Uh, at the end of the day, we are not there. We are not in the flesh. We are not in the bone. Both of them are reminders of pieces of what we are, but not of our existence. And I think that is what is incredibly beautiful. It is a transmutation. It is a revelation. It is, but it's not a disintegration. It's not shocking in that way. To me, obviously, I'm a twisted man. It is almost beautiful. It is almost a purification. And it, it tells you that the very essence of our physical existence is those bones, are those bones. And that... Uh, that skull represents all that will die, all that will perish, but the light and the beauty and the dawn and the, the sunrise at the end represent all that is eternal. The serenity is what it will be eternal. Now, depending obviously on your denomination, uh, you may agree or disagree with it, but what you cannot disagree with is the power of that poem, the power of that structure, the lyrical, rhythmic uh, repetition, the rhyme and the precision of the construction of that rhyme. And uh, here we move to the final uh, portion of the film, and uh, this is where I think... Uh, uh, we start seeing the cannibal, the incredible voracious nature of uh, white. And uh, it, is, it is really beautiful, the fact that uh, uh, the way Dreyer constructs the story, uh, it, it, you know, it is anecdotically important that the victim survives the night, that she survives into the dawn uh, in order to more importantly than anything, save her soul. And now, uh, in essence, this last movement is about that dawn and the absence of the shadow that is going to lead you, you know, into this final clash between light and shadow where light will absorb it all. And this is a moment of incredible abstract power in terms of the storytelling. 
of incredible lyrical power uh, that is uh, sustained purely and solely by film. It is not sustained by uh, any uh, uh, linear narrative. It is is a pure montage of uh, light and shadow. And uh, this is where the doctor goes to meet his final fate. And uh, and uh, the peg-legged man with no shadow, uh, I love this shot, lies there like a broken puppet. And, a, and the cut is to the watch with no machine, the watch with no face. You know, this empty hole, you know, like the skeleton in the coffin, like the man with no shadow, and like the clock with no machinery. This, these people are now hollow and empty, and they have lost their soul. And finally, this, uh, this moment uh, that I think, uh, uh, you know, I remember, uh, again, another movie influenced by it, I would suspect, was uh, Richard Stanley's uh, Dust Devil, that contains a gorgeous sequence in, in an abandoned town in the middle of a desert, and the entire uh, town is overtaken by sand. You know, that this, this limbo, this perfect limbo where the doctor drowns, is uh, incredible both as a narrative device and technically. We know that Rudolf Matte uh, shot most of the film uh, through a backlit gauze to give it this ethereal quality. Uh, you know, there is a pervasive myth that the film was shot and then exposed uh, voluntarily to create a, a, a washed-out feel, but that is not true. It is true that uh, an accident of a, a film can that had been accidentally exposed gave uh, Dreyer the clue of what his film should look like. But it is not at all the way it was achieved technically. For anyone that knows anything about cinematography, uh, you know, this is incredibly important because this type of room, there's no color that is more difficult to light and work to achieve nuance than white. White is incredibly difficult technically. Uh, because evidently uh, is very voracious with the light and it devours the light and uh, it's very hard to give shape and to give any interesting uh, uh, light to it without just becoming blank. And I think, uh, although it's not often quoted as one of the more impressive achievements in the film from this aspect, I think this is uh, perhaps the most impressive uh, sequence from the technical point of view. Obviously, we have the burial from the how impressive it is, the fluidity of the camera being able to be moving through the different spaces subjectively and so forth. But this is a perfect marriage of technique and artistic intention. You know, it's a moment that graphically is incredibly beautiful and unparalleled for me in any other film ever. Uh, and this, these are the heroes, again, also being absorbed by the white. And both, uh, both villain and heroes and every other character in the film is going to be absorbed by the light, which concludes 
in a perfect circle the idea of the memento mori. Because in the memento mori, in the dance of the death, what is essentially stated is that no matter who you are, you will end up uh, there, absorbed by death, absorbed by this blinding, uncaring, and all-encompassing whiteness, nothingness. And uh, in the dance of the death, it does not matter if you are a pope or a beggar, if you are a fool or a king, you will be ground the same way by the wheels of God. You will uh, become by matter, but then your soul will be embraced by the light in the exact same way. And in that, Dreyer concludes in a beautiful way uh, that memento mori, because both the villain and the heroes of the film, regardless of their past actions, regardless of them being good or them being bad, are ultimately absorbed by that light. And we achieve this uh, final uh, moment of absolute perfection. And uh, this is perhaps uh, the most representative image of what I was talking about when I said the film is like a mezzotint, a perfect graphic creation that uh, achieves uh, the highest of cinema forms in one of the most debased genres of it. And for that, it is perfect.